Good morning, everybody. Uh, this morning, uh, we are going to continue our series looking at the geography of Jesus. Hopefully, over the last couple weeks, uh, you have seen what, how geography impacts kind of the way that we read the Bible. Um, Tony has kind of walked us through two different things, and at, when we know the spaces uh, and the places that Jesus was, um, sometimes that enhances our understanding of the things that he said. Uh, it's a process they call in seminary hermeneutics. You understand the context of your passage, and a lot of times it brings out some really beautiful things. So we're going to continue that today. Uh, as we walk through the book of Matthew, we're going to actually see the prologue to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and then the Beatitudes as well. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to four, Matthew 4, verse 23 is where we're going to begin today. Matthew 4, verse 23. And like we said, this is the prologue to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, which, is a lo- which, is, which is the first G- sermon that Jesus preaches in the book of Matthew. It's the first time he actually does a significant amount of teaching in the book of Matthew. Matthew four twenty three, which says this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering with severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. We're going to continue on to the next bit in a little bit, but before we do that, I want to take a look at what we just read. So if we could throw up a map here a minute. So if you, this is the same map that you saw last week with Tony. What you'll notice in the passage that we just read is that there are a whole bunch of locations, aren't there? There are quite a few of them. First thing that we see, if Jesus went throughout Galilee. So if you don't, if you don't remember where Galilee was or you weren't here when we talked about it, Galilee is this region right up here. It's, it's, uh, it's a significant difference or, uh, distance from Jerusalem and Judea, which are down here. Uh, Samaria, Samaria is in between, so the Jews would walk around to get up there. Um, and Galilee was culturally very different than Jerusalem or Judea. Uh, the way Tony described it is, is that Galilee was where your backwoods cousins live, right? And so if Jerusalem is New York, Galilee is the bayous of Louisiana, right? You've got both of those things. They're part of the same nation, but culturally they're very different from one another. And so we start by saying we have people from Galilee. It also says that Jesus was walking through the region of Syria, which is right here. So we have some Syrians along there as well. Actually, this box right here is where the Sermon on the Mount takes place, right in there, okay? So we have people from, uh, from Galilee. We have people from Syria, which would probably most likely include Greeks. Then it says we have people from the, the, the Decapolis. Now, Decapolis is a compound Greek word, uh, which you probably can put together. Deca meaning ten, polis meaning city. It means the ten cities. So the Decapolis is ten Greek cities that actually start up here, and actually the last one's down in this region here, so it kind of morphs all the way along that section there. It's ten primarily Greek cities in the region, meaning the people from the Decapolis most likely were Greek. Paul, or Matthew continues on, and he says there also were people from Jerusalem. So we have Galilee, we have Syria, we have the Decapolis, and then we have Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be where your spiritual elites live, right? Jerusalem, got it. Jerusalem is an educated, a more educated place. It's where the temple was. It's where, be, where your Sadducees would be. Many of your Pharisees would go there often because that's where the temple is, right? So you had your religious elite in Jerusalem. Jerusalem had kind of the, 
Like this, it was the spiritual center of this entire region for the time. So we have people from Jerusalem, meaning most likely Pharisees and Sadducees as well. Then it says we have people from Judea, which is this region right here. Now they were, they were closer to Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was still a little bit more elite than they were. But they would have still seen themselves a little bit more upper class than those from Galilee up there, and definitely more upper class than the Greeks. And then finally, it says we have people from the area east of the Jordan, which is right there, actually. Um, it was in a region at that time called Perea. Uh, it was primarily Jewish. However, it was a little bit culturally different than both Galilee and Jerusalem and Judea. So uh, we have, what, we, what we see here is, a, is something really interesting. Um, we see that we have people from all over the place. It's a hodgepodge. It is a completely diverse group of people. Jesus begins his teaching ministry in Matthew, preaching to a very diverse group of people from a variety of backgrounds. We have, we have a ton of different um, ethnicities here. We have a ton of different religious backgrounds. We have a ton of different cultural backgrounds. We've got the backwood cousins from Galilee. We've got the Greeks from Syria and the Decapolis. We've got the religious folk from Jerusalem. We've got unreligious folk from around the areas as well. It was a crazy mix of people. There would have been working class people and Pharisees and very religious folk and very unreligious folk and pagans, probably people worshiping Zeus would have been there uh, or Jupiter if we're in the Roman era. Um, we have poor people. We have rich people. You get the point. It's an incredibly diverse group of people there. And that matters for this particular sermon. Now, we, we read the prologue to the Sermon on the Mount and realized that the people he's preaching to are going to be there for the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but when we understand who Jesus was teaching to, teaching to, it helps us understand the whole Sermon on the Mount a little bit better. What we realize is that, this, that, that the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, in particular the Beatitudes, is the beginning of what Matthew recorded Jesus teaching along the way. We do know Jesus had been teaching earlier. We actually read it in the thing we saw earlier. He was going to synagogues, he was teaching, he was healing, he was doing things. But Matthew specifically doesn't tell us what those things were and doesn't tell us what Jesus was teaching until the Beatitudes. All right, so what does all of that mean? Well, that means that the beginning of the, how we open up the Beatitudes matter here because it's kind of setting the stage for all of Jesus' teaching in this case, not, at least the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And what we see is that Jesus is going to begin his public recorded ministry in Matthew, speaking to all of these different people, and he begins it with his unbelievable announcement, an announcement of good, good news, of gospel, and it's a shocking one at that. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you might be thinking like I did originally, well, that's not all that shocking. We've read that a whole bunch of times. But uh, through a modern lens, it's all not, not that shocking. But when we look at it a little bit more closely, I think something really beautiful will pop out for you. In order for us to really understand it, though, the first thing we have to understand is what it means to be blessed. The theologic, theologian... Um, Frederick Dale Buhner describes being blessed as a declaration of God's being with you or being, God being on your side. When he says someone is blessed, God is saying, I'm with you, I love you, I'm on your side. Frederick Buechner says this, in the biblical sense, if you give your blessing, you irreversibly convey into my life not just something of the beneficent power and vitality of who you are, but something also of the life-giving power of God in whose name you are giving the blessing. 
It's saying that when, when we bless somebody, in this case, that when we bless somebody, we are, we are giving them a piece of ourself. So, of course, then if God is blessing, he's saying, I'm with you, I'm here with you, I'm near to you. So that's what the Beatitudes are declaring. I am with you when. So we've got a promise of God being with us. And who, and who is God with? Well, he's with the poor in spirit, right? He's actually with a number of people, as we'll see. So what does that mean? The theologian Dallas Willard says, to be poor in spirit, he argues, is a negative thing. A person poor and poor in spirit is someone who is struggling, who is wrestling, who can't seem to get it together, who is searching for God and can't seem to find him, who is poor in his spirit or her spirit. It would be a person who feels lost or struggling. So if we put ourselves then in the shoes of this audience, all of a sudden this becomes shocking then. Just imagine you were from Galilee. You've been taught that your entire life that the spiritual, of the world, spiritual ones of the world come from where? Well, they come from Jerusalem, right? You've been taught that God is in the temple, which is also in Jerusalem. If you wanted to be blessed, if you wanted to experience God with you, you were living in the wrong place, right? You were living up north, and you really needed to be down south. You may even consider yourself to be poor in spirit, not filled in the same way as those who are in Jerusalem, perhaps. And so then Jesus flips that notion right on its head, doesn't he? Blessed are you, God is with you, when you feel as if you are lacking in spirit. Now imagine you were from Syria or the Decapolis. You might not be following God at all. You may be following Zeus or Jupiter or you take your pick. And if you know anything about those pagan gods, those gods are distant. They're far away. They're vengeful. They're angry. They're fickle. You make one wrong step, and you might get hit with a lightning bolt. Actually, that's, isn't that the picture most of us have of Zeus? He stands there with a lightning bolt just waiting. You screw up, he'll throw it at you. The Greek gods aren't with you. And so if you are wrestling in that space, if you're trying to find something deeper or better, which we know these people are because they had come to Jesus, right? You may feel as if you are poor in spirit. And so Jesus declares to you, blessed are you. God is with you. The kingdom is for you too. Now what if you were from Judea or the Jordan, or east of the Jordan? Now you're closer to Jerusalem, that's good, but perhaps you're looking at the Pharisees who are following the law to the letter who in your eyes exemplify holiness and you just seem to not be able to live up to that standard. You can't break this habit or, or you go to the temple, you don't go to the temple as much as you should or whatever it might be. You could perhaps feel like you are lacking in spirit as well. You are poor in spirit or lacking the holiness God desires. And so Jesus' message would speak directly to you as well. Blessed are those who struggle to be holy. God is with you. The kingdom has come for you. You see, the gospel, the word gospel literally means good news. If you were any of the people that we just described, this announcement would be good news, wouldn't it? It would be amazing news. It would be the kind of, a new, kind of news that attracts large crowds from all over the region. We saw people come from way down south. We saw people that came from north and everywhere in between. It would be the kind of news that once you heard, you'd immediately go home and tell your family about and bring them back to see Jesus again because it's paradigm-changing, it's game-changing, it's world-changing, and it's gospel. It was Jesus' message throughout the New Testament. 
Think about the number of ways he says it. Think about the, uh, the parable of the wedding feast. How does that go? Uh, the, the king invites the, uh, a certain group of people to the party. They don't want to come, and so who does he invite instead? Everyone else. He says, come be with me. Zacchaeus. Another great story. He was hated by society. He was a criminal. He was poor in spirit. And what does Jesus say to him? I got to stay at your house tonight. You got to have dinner, and then I'm going to stay overnight. And we know he caught flack for that too, right? Jesus blessed Zacchaeus. And people responded saying, no, 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 that's not the way this works. People like Zacchaeus, blessings aren't for people like him. The Beatitudes aren't for people like him. What are you doing with him? And Jesus says, I need to be with him. For all of the people that we just described, that would be beautiful news. It would be something that would change everything. Unfortunately, we know that not everyone was there heard it as good news. Because imagine, imagine you were a religious leader from Jerusalem. You go to the temple every day, you teach the law, and you follow it to the letter. You tie the tenth of your dill, as we know from a different part of the scripture. You've lived your entire life following the rules so that you could be considered blessed by God. How does this message hit your ears then? It would, produce, it would produce a different kind of response, wouldn't it? Up to this point, you kind of had the market cornered on blessing, didn't you? You were the holy ones. You were the ones in whom God's favor rested in your mind. So what would this message do to all of that? It'd mess it all up, wouldn't it? Because this announcement is directly contrasted to the Pharisees' teachings and beliefs. They taught, and we see it throughout the New Testament Scripture, they taught you weren't blessed unless unless you tithed rightly, unless you observed the Sabbath rightly, unless you believed rightly, unless you sacrificed rightly, unless you washed the right part of your cup at the right time, unless you ate rightly, unless you visited the temple rightly, unless you had enough faith. You get the point. The Pharisees had to live. You don't bless. God's not with you unless, and there's a laundry list of things. You're not blessed unless you followed the rules. Then God was with you, and if not, you're out of luck. Jesus, in the Beatitudes, and really throughout the Sermon on the Mount, turns that idea on its head. He messes it all up. He says, blessed are those who mourn because God is with you and comfort is yours. Contrasted to it's all part of God's plan and you just need to have enough faith. Buck up, move on. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, those who are getting walked over, those who are not powerful, those who aren't strong enough to push back. Jesus says, God is with you. He's on your side. He actually says, you might not have much now, but you will eventually inherit the earth. The Pharisees would say, no, 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 God's with the bold. Meek people aren't preaching the word in the temple. Meek people aren't standing up for the law. Meek people aren't doing a lot of things that they thought they should. Jesus says, no, I'm with you. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are surrounded by injustice or being oppressed or witnessing someone else being oppressed, maybe by Rome or, or, or by even the religious leaders that were around them at that time. Those people are crying out to God to be made right, for things to be made right. 
These people are starving for things to be the way they should be. They are parched and they need the water of righteousness. They're crying out and Jesus says to them, God is with you and he will fill you. Which would have threatened the very power structure of Jerusalem, which we know from the rest of the story it did. So much so that the Pharisees hated him. Jesus hated Jesus. He says, blessed are the merciful. Those of you who are offering up mercy to those who fall short. He says, God is with you and you will experience his mercy. You contrast that to the judgmentalism of the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 3 says, but do not do what they do, speaking of the Pharisees, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They're not showing mercy to those who need mercy. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are you when you struggle to follow the whole law, but love Jesus and love each other, for God is with you. Blessed are when your heart is striving to follow Jesus, contrasted to the practice of the Pharisees who followed all the rules, but, Matthew 23, 27, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones and, dead and, and the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear, at, to be people as right, to appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Blessed are you when you're not that, but you're pure inside, even if people can't see it. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Those of you who are striving to make difficult situations better, but it feels like you may, it's a never-ending battle. If you've ever had to be a peacemaker, it is a beautiful announcement for God to say, I'm with you. Because sometimes that peacemaking process can be miserable, right? It can be incredibly difficult, can feel like it can be never-ending. And so the declaration, I am with you, means something, doesn't it? He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. You're, you're trying to do what's right in this world, and people are pressing back in on you. They're trying to slow you down and stop you. He says, I'm with you. God is with you. He's on your side. You need to hear that in that situation, don't you? Jesus begins his teaching in the book of Matthew by turning the religious structures of their time on their head. He sees a group of people from a variety of backgrounds, some who know God already, some who follow Zeus, but are searching for something different. Jesus sees a group of people that have been taught that their God or gods are far away and only close to a small group of incredibly, incredibly religious people who do and say exactly the right things. Whether that's the Pharisees, who had to follow every rule to the absolute letter, or whether it's the priest of Zeus. Only a certain number of people get to actually be with God. And so before Jesus does anything else, before he gives any instruction on how to love God well and love each other well, which let's not miss that, he does that for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. God loves you, God's with you, and now this is how we love God and love each other, Right? But before he does any of that, Jesus just declares, God is with you. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants you to be near to him. In your broken, sinful, unrighteous, or persecuted state, God is now with you. You are blessed. Romans says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't get made right first. 
And that is a beautiful message of the gospel, isn't it? That's the message that we have. The good news is no matter where you are or what you've done, God loves you. That doesn't mean he's trying to lead, not lead you into a better way of life, but it does mean he loves you no matter what. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so as I was thinking about this passage this week, what do we do with that? We, we, we can see Jesus speaking to a wide, diverse group of people and declaring that they are loved, they are blessed. But what does that mean for us today? And the one thing that kept poking at me, pricking at me, was this. What if churches, what if Ivan Rest Church were to start all of our ministry in the same way Jesus does? What if we were to look at the wide variety of people we have all around us, both in this building now and around us in our community outside? The white suburbanites, our black brothers and sisters, single moms, the poors, those in jail? What if we were to look at those who are wrestling with broken relationships or a lack of purpose, or those who lack the courage to stand up for themselves? What if we were to look at all of these different kind of people? What if we were to look at the people who are tormented by injustice and don't know how to express it? What if we were to see that wide variety of people, and what if we met them with the same declaration Jesus did? Just the simple message of God is with you that God loves you, that he's on your side, that he wants to be with you, and he wants you to experience all of the life that that brings. What if we didn't require people who walk through our doors to follow a list of rules before they can be right with God? What if we admitted that even those rules that we're asking people to follow, we're not following ourselves? What would that do to our message? I have interest message, but the church broader. What would that do to, how would that change things? How would that impact our reaching out into the spaces around us? Now, my per personal interaction with that message is, is really profound, and honestly, God blessed it in a big way this past Thursday. One of the primary tenets of our Alpha program here is, is just this. We have people that come in from a variety of backgrounds, some of which are pretty messy. And we don't, ask any, we don't ask for change. We don't say, you need to do this now if you want to keep coming. We just continually and repeatedly declare God loves you, and so do we. Over and over and over and over and over again sometimes. For the past four years, I've had this one young man as part of our Alpha group. He's one of the original five that came. He's been coming consistently year after year and sitting there and doesn't say much, honestly. Uh, hadn't said much for most of the time we were together. Honestly, there were, there were definitely weeks where, like, is he even, does he care? Is he engaged? Does it, does it matter? Until last week. So last week, we were sitting there in our, in our space, and this young man says, he goes, you know how you guys are always talking about how God lives inside you? I said, yep. Because I believe that. He says, when I'm here, I feel good. I feel like I want to do good. He goes, honestly, now when I'm out in the world and I do bad, it almost eats my soul. I didn't know what to say. I was sitting there, Deb was sitting there with me, and uh, we, we were dumbfounded. We didn't know what to do. We were like, holy cow, he was listening the whole time, and God was actually working on his heart that whole time. Changed everything for him. He goes on to say, I've got this friend who I've been telling I go to church. He goes to church on Thursday. We already worked, we're trying to get him on Sunday, but I guess Thursday is as good as Sunday, right? He goes, I go to church, on, he goes, I go to church, and this guy he keeps telling me, he goes, Christians are all fake happy, and I don't want any part of that. And he goes, he just, he goes, he just hasn't seen the other side of that. He goes, he asks us, 
How do I get through to them? What in the, where, where did this come from? Wow, right? That's just God working in him. It's unbelievable. We're, I'm staring at him like, wow, you, you, you went from where, this guy that I knew four years ago to actively evangelizing all the people around you. Not with a judgment message, not with a message saying you need to follow all of these rules if you want to be part of us, but a message that said there's something better out there. There's the other side, and I want you into that. Now, that's beautiful, right? That's gospel. That's good news. That's life-changing news. And you can see it in that example there. It's beautiful. It was emotional, honestly. Now, there may be some of you out there who are unsettled with this declaration. And I do want to be clear. I said it once, but I'll say it again. I'm not saying that God doesn't give us direction or a right way to live. I fully believe that. I'm not, I'm not saying that there, that there, there isn't a, a, a the, God isn't asking us to do certain things. He clearly did. Actually, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount declares that. But what I am saying is that those instructions are given to draw us into a deeper relationship with God and with each other. They are not meant to be a measuring stick of God's favor. And if we make them that, we screw everything up. That's what the Pharisees were teaching. And Jesus has a whole lot to say about that. If you go to Matthew 23, 13, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door to the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to enter get in. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and then you make that convert twice as much a child of hell as you are. Oof. That's, Jesus said that. That's, that's heavy, right? You see, friends, we have the gospel at our disposal. We have the good news. We have the declaration that God is with us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we got things right. And there probably are some of you out there right now that need to hear that. And you need to believe that. Perhaps you're here this morning, you've been struggling You've been trying to get things right. You realize you're not living the holy life that God's asked you to live. And that's eaten at you. And maybe perhaps the enemy has tried to tell you that means that God doesn't care about you as much as he does everybody else. Or that he's not on your side or that he's holding back from you or that, he, that there's something wrong there. So maybe you need to hear the message that Jesus proclaimed in that space. God loves you. You are blessed. Blessed are you. Maybe you're feeling poor in spirit or meek or you're mourning or striving to make peace in a relationship. Maybe things seem all messed up around you and you feel beat up and you need to hear that declaration, blessed are you. It's not about getting everything right right now. You just need to know God cares, that Jesus is with you. If that's you this morning, I hope you can hear that. Before Jesus does anything else in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes the declaration, blessed are you. Before you do anything else to try to get things right, just rest in the fact that God loves you, and from there, everything else falls into place. That's the good news of the gospel. And because of that, we also need to realize that the gospel message is not just for those of us who are in the room right now. It's for the entire world. We live in a world filled with brokenness and pain, we're filled with confusion and people who feel like they're just wandering. We're surrounded by people who are constantly striving to find fullness in this life, but are constantly coming up short. We're surrounded by people who believe that God is not with them, 
because of the things they have done or are afraid to do. And honestly, we're surrounded by people who believe God is not with them because some people in the church have told them that. You see, we have the opportunity to change that narrative. To proclaim the gospel, which literally means the good news of Christ, that God is with us. And not only is he with us, but he's with all of you. We have the message that that the young man was trying to say, that that you just haven't seen the other side. That you just haven't seen what it looks like when you really get to know God. We have that message. We can live it in our lives and we can share it with anybody who will listen. And we realize, (laughs) when I'm here, it makes me feel good. It makes me want to do good and now when I don't, it almost eats my soul. That's not us. That's the Holy Spirit working on someone's heart, right? We proclaim the good news and it can make all the difference in the world if we let it. He can change hearts. He can change lives. He can bring about fullness and purpose that nothing else can, and that's the good news we possess and that we ought to share. It's exciting. It's world-changing. It's paradigm-changing. It would shift the entire world if we faithfully lived that out and proclaimed it into into all of the spaces of the world. See, there once was a king who prepared a great banquet Those he originally invited refused to come. So he called out to those on the street, to those who were down and out, to those who were not following all the rules, to those the world saw as bums. And he invited them to be with him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for meeting us in our brokenness. We thank you so much for caring for us even though we didn't deserve it. Lord, we pray for those who are here this morning who are wrestling to believe that you do love them. Wrestling to believe that they're they're not good enough or that they've fallen short. May your declaration of blessedness fall on them. Lord, we pray for those in the communities around us who desperately need to hear that they are loved and cared for by you whether they're currently following you or whether they're searching. May we consistently and repeatedly declare that you love everyone, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, and that you would desperately desire to call us into relationship with yourself so that we can experience the fullness of life that that contains. Lord, we pray all of, this thing, all of these things in the name of Jesus through the power of your Spirit. Amen. If you could stand and we'll sing our final song.